God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is 1 Peter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our blessedness is found in our union with Christ. It's not found in the things of this world. The things of this world delight us. We're thankful for them but they don't provide lasting satisfaction. They're not our chief delight. Our delight is God and the things of his kingdom and his glory. There are times when our lives become lazy and we become complacent. And we don't think much of God. And we don't think much about God's kingdom. We live, in our, life, we live our lives in the flesh and we do so caught up in the things of this life without much consideration for spiritual things. The apostle is addressing that concern and addressing the fact that as in the past the saints have suffered, so you will suffer going forward. As in the past, God has been faithful and he preserved his saints, so also God will preserve his saints going forward. In the past, the saints suffered even unto death. And so we too will suffer unto death. But through it all, we are to keep our focus on the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Now Peter provides a very practical application here to the suffering of Christ. We noted the references in Peter there to the sufferings of Christ. And now he makes a very practical application to that. We must arm ourselves with the same mind of obedience with which Christ armed himself. And that obedience will uphold us. It will strengthen us in the midst of our suffering as we live according to the Spirit. A life in the Spirit is not content with life here below. A life in the Spirit is always constantly looking for something better. And that's the point of the hope that the Apostle stresses and emphasizes. Faith unites us to Christ. We walk by love, love toward God and love toward the neighbor. And that faith and hope are exor- that faith and love are exercised in the way of hope, a hope that is an earnest expectation for the future glory that God will provide. Life in the spirit is characterized by that hope. That hope shows itself in a spiritual watchfulness and a spiritual soberness. It shows itself in a prayer that Christ will come back again. Now others, especially in the world, but even in the church, won't understand such a walk. They think it's strange, the apostle says. God has reminded us again and again of the need to be living with a view to the end. And God not only causes, we know, the elderly to die, but he also takes younger men, younger women, even children, And once they die, everything is left behind. Nothing earthly is of any use to them any longer. But that one thing that is lasting is our walk with God. And that eternal friendship of God's covenant faithfulness. That we treasure. And that we are to live in earnest expectation of the fullness of. And that's the point of the apostle then. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober 
and watch unto prayer. Called to soberness and prayer, we take as our theme, noting just two things, the command and the urgency. Be therefore sober. Now the common use of the word sober in the English language has to do with temperance in drinking, abstinence from alcoholic beverages, that the Christian is to refrain from drunkenness, from indulgence to alcohol, is clearly stated in the Bible repeatedly. And it's a shame that such sins continue to plague the church of Jesus Christ. We are not to allow anything to take control of our mind, control of our body, to the point that we lose our impairment or we become drugged and not able to consciously continue that walk that God calls us to. And as such then, the demand comes to us. All things in moderation. Be sober. It's obvious here, however, that the word sober has a broader and more extensive application. As its first meaning, the idea is physically. That physically, there's a certain state of mind that characterizes us. A carefulness. And that reference is found often through the Bible. One who is in full use of his mental facilities, as opposed to someone who is alienated from his right mind. He's not in good mind. For instance, in Mark 5, verse 15, Jesus healed a man who was possessed by a demon. And we read the man afterward, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. He was now sober. He was one who now was in a right faculty of thinking and he was able to make a good judgment with regard to the circumstances around him. Previously, he had not been in that mind. Paul, upon being accused by Festus that he was mad, responded, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of soberness. Acts 26, verses 34 and 35. Words of soberness. He was in a good frame of mind. He was able to speak carefully. And the New Testament builds on that and adds a moral sense to that word. So that, as we read this morning, Paul exhorts every man not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Romans 12, verse 3. The idea not only that we are thinking clearly, but that we're doing so in connection with our understanding of who I am by nature and by grace. Through the Bible, we read women are adorned, called to adorn themselves with sobriety. What does that mean? There's a prudence, there's a wisdom, there's a moderation that's in contrast with the gold and the pearls and the costly array of 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Similarly, an elder, a Christian elder, is called to be sober. And what's the idea of that? It notes wisdom, prudence, moderation. The grace of God moving men to live soberly, righteous, and godly. So there's a spiritual connotation here to this soberness. The idea of humbly viewing oneself in connection with God's goodness and God's grace. Walking in prudence, in wisdom, in moderation. This exhortation then is not merely to refrain from getting drunk, but it's an admonition then to walk in a manner that reflects that spiritual work of God's grace 
in your and my lives. So that it can be seen in the decisions we're making and the attitude that we have in the pursuit of various things that we're walking with a sound mind, that we're displaying evidence of that spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that we're giving others to see that that which controls and that which governs our lives is the grace of God. And so, beloved, this is a very practical admonition to walk with a sound mind with regard to matters that we can see and matters that we can't see. Because we're walking by faith, and that faith is motivated by love and hope is that which governs and directs us. So that we're looking at all sides of an issue before we're passing judgment. We're thinking before we speak. We're being aware of not making shadows into reality or making that which is a reality into a shadow. And a very particular admonition because this isn't something that all men possess. Soberness is a spiritual trait that God works in the hearts and lives of His children in Jesus Christ. It's a wisdom that's from above. And it's the carefulness and the knowledge of who I am and my relationship to my possessions and to the world in which I'm living. So that the soberness and the call here is to walk in wisdom in all that you're doing in the midst of this life. Walk in Christ. And apply Christ to the whole of your walk, to the whole of your outlook on life. View everything in terms of Christ and the glory that is due unto Him. So that the end of all things is viewed. We live in such a way that we're not expecting to live forever, but we know that there will be an end. And we know that that end has to do with the goal of the glory of God being revealed in all of its fullness. And we're living then in such a way that our eye is focused on that spiritual heavenly home. We're aware of the fact that this earth and everything that's in it is going to get burned with fire. We're aware of the fact that when we die, we can't take anything with us. All the works of men are going to be burned up. And so we make our pursuit, as we go through this life then, a pursuit of the things that are spiritual, the things that are lasting, not matters that are going to be destroyed at death. To make it more clear, Peter is contrasting here sobriety with earthly indulgence. The life of the flesh is a life that's immersed with pleasure. It's a life that parties, enjoys excess, gives oneself over to all the lusts of the world. And we ask ourselves, is that how I'm living? Is that what characterizes my walk in the midst of this world? Is that what characterizes my time and what occupies my attention? What is my greatest focus? And what is that which governs my concerns and my walk in the midst of this earth? How is it that I'm filling my days? We're fleshly. We're earthly. And so easily and so quickly, our lives are lived for this earth and for the things of this earth. As young people, we're interested in looks and popularity. We're interested in the things that are here below, in money. And so we live for the moment. And we take temporary pleasure in the experiences and the things that we're able to pursue. Vacations become more and more luxurious and extravagant compared to previous generations. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the question is this. 
Is it controlling us? Is it something that we could give up? Or is it that which has taken hold of us now and is even moving us to sacrifice spiritual goals and spiritual endeavors? So easy it is for us to begin viewing this world as an end in itself rather than as a means to an end. Think of Abraham of old. Abraham had wealth. He had fame. Abraham lived looking for that city that had foundations whose builder and maker was Jehovah. He was a pilgrim. He was a stranger. He wasn't living for the things here below. God had given him much. He made use of that which he had. But his life was directed toward that city that had foundations. It's the idea that the apostle here is stressing by the inspiration of the Spirit. Sober living. Living not as though the things of this earth are ends in themselves, but living by hope. An earnest expectation of the glory that awaits. Indulgence in earthly things results in the mind and the spirit Becoming drugged spiritually, drowsy spiritually. We're indulging in sleep. We're indulging in work. We're indulging in every area of life. And the result is that we're not living close to God. We're not walking with God. We're not spending time in prayer. We're not living as though we are walking always before His face. But rather, we're living for ourselves. And we're living for the moment. And we're living in the pursuit of mammon. We're not living with our eye focused on the suffering of Christ. We're not expecting suffering to come upon us. We're not living in the expectation of being delivered from this spiritual battle against sin. We're not living with our eye directed toward heaven. We're living as fools. And that's what the apostle here is warning us against. Earthly indulgence is not characterized by watchfulness and prayer. Don't walk in that manner. Rather, give yourselves over to that spiritual soberness. And spiritual sobriety is the ability to see everything in our lives, especially our possessions, and the opportunities and the pleasures that God gives, as means to an end. They're not the end themselves. They're means toward that end that God has ordained, of the glory that awaits. So all of the earthly is temporary. It's all part of this earthly life. And God calls us to make use of it. He calls us to be busy in the life that we're called to here below, but to use it in the service of glory, to sanctify all that we have by prayer, as Paul instructs in 1 Timothy 4. Enjoying the luxuries of the day that God gives, the appliances, the computers, all of the privileges that we have, enjoying the good food and the nice clothes and receiving all of these things from the hand of God to be used now in the pursuit of that glorious hope that lives in our hearts. That hope for a better country and for a more glorious citizenship. This earthly life in all of its aspects, is like a scaffolding. And we're familiar with scaffolding. If you're building something or you're adding on to something, you build scaffolding so that you can work on the building that is the focus of your attention. 
Our earthly life in all of its aspects are like that scaffolding. It has a specific purpose. But once God is finished building and preparing us for glory, then that scaffolding is no longer necessary. Our jobs are no longer necessary. The clothing that we wore, no longer necessary. Our food, our relationships, nothing is necessary anymore. God then brings us out of all of that into the glory that awaits. So that this earthly body and this earthly life is compared with that scaffolding. And God using all of the experiences and opportunities and circumstances, the relationships, the gifts that he's given, all toward the goal of preparing us for that glorious place that he has for us in glory. He who is spiritually sober confesses, I'm a stranger then in the midst of this world. This is not where I am a citizen. I don't fit in. I'm a pilgrim passing through to glory, making use of all that God has given me as I walk down this pathway, but using it in the service of my king and using it for the glory of God. And he believes and he lays hold on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he believes, though I die, yet I shall live. And my expectation and my hope is not set on the earthly. It's set on that which is to come. That which is incorruptible, which fadeth not away, which is reserved in heaven for me. As God keeps me and preserves me for that glorious day. That's what Peter spoke of in chapter 1. And that's now what continues to be the subject here in connection with soberness. And so in prosperity, we don't set our hearts upon the things of this earth. In adversity, in suffering, in tribulation, we're not alarmed because we know the end. We know the goal. And we know that though I die, though they kill me, I will enjoy the blessedness of that which is my inheritance forever. And so, beloved, this is the question that we face this evening. Am I spending my energy building the scaffolding? Or do I understand the difference? Using the scaffolding as a tool to walk with God, to glorify Him, and to seek the things that are above. Using the earthly as that scaffolding that God has given in order to walk with Him and to exalt and to praise His name. All that scaffolding will be laid aside at death. Our souls translated into glory. Sober. But in connection with that soberness, watch unto prayer. Prayer is to religion what breath is to life. God's children pray. Prayer is the expression of dependence, thankfulness. It's looking to God and leaning on Him and living in connection with His goodness and His mercy that fails never. The important duty that's set before us in this passage is not simply to pray. There are numerous passages of the Bible that emphasize the importance of prayer, requiring that God's children continue instant in prayer talking about the fact that we are to pray without ceasing. And we can find much instruction in the Bible about prayer. But what is it that this passage is speaking of? The unique calling here is not just to pray, but it's to 
watch unto prayer. Now, what's meant by watching? There are different ways the word watching is used in the Bible. One is used to refer to the shepherd watching his flocks as he watches them and sees to it that none of them are straying. That's not the idea here. This is a more vigorous application of watching. It refers to a state of mind in which one is awake and aware. One's faculties are active and he's on guard. It's, a synony- it's synonymous with being sober, being alert, watching around us, excitedly at, tension, at attention, and actively exerting our mind and our thoughts, and doing so in connection with prayer. So that we're watching with respect to all of our activities and all the circumstances of life. There's a special need to be watchful unto prayer. So what does this mean? Watching yourself. Am I indulging myself in the things of this world? There's a watchfulness by which I keep an eye focused on me and my conduct and my attitude. Watching my life. Am I slipping into that spiritual lethargy about which the Bible warns? Am I just sailing without effort down the river, going with the flow of time, going with the current? Or am I transforming? Am I just conforming with the culture and the world about? We're sinful. We're inclined to go with the flow, to give in to the wickedness and to give in to the sinfulness around us. Therefore, watch that you're not using prayer and the things of this world simply for your personal good. Take care that your prayers are not selfish, that your prayers are just all about things earthly and wanting earthly things, but that your prayer is in the service of Jehovah. Watch unto prayer. Watch that your prayers are characterized by Not my will, thy will be done. That you're not giving yourself over to the lusts of the flesh that would inhibit your prayers. But secondly, watch in your prayers with respect to the world around you. Watch the world through the eyes of faith. Evaluate the things that are taking place around you in the world. Be men and women, young people who understand the times. And as you watch around you, and as you look around you and see what's happening, evaluate what's happening in light of God's Word. The world is constantly trying to entangle us with all of its lusts and its pride of life and all of its developments. We need to know history. We need to keep our eye on the developments that are taking place in the world so that we know how to stand guard, how to respond, so that we can anticipate the threats that our children are going to face and we can be prepared to teach them and to warn them and to lay before them the urgency of the calling to be transformed rather than conformed. Warning your children of the true nature of the world and its threat to God's church and God's people. And rather than letting the world then cause your prayer life to deteriorate, using your knowledge of the world to make your prayers all the more fervent. As you see what's going on, and as you analyze what's happening, your prayers then become focused all the more on the glory of God and His will being done. 
But thirdly, watching for the end and directing our prayers toward that goal. So that watch unto prayer. Watch myself. Watch with regard to the world around me. But then also watch with regard to the end. The end is near. And therefore, we need to be watchful. And that's the whole point of Matthew 24. The disciples come to Jesus and say, when will these things take place? And Jesus now gives them clear instruction as to what to watch for. And that admonition, watch, is repeated throughout the Bible. In Matthew 24, repeatedly we read, watch. And often, watch and pray are put in the same connotation. Know the signs and look for them. Signs in the realm of nature. Signs in the realm of the church. Signs with regard to the history of the nations. Watch for these signs. These signs are directing us to Christ and His coming. And as we know those signs and as we learn about those signs, we watch so that we can see those signs. And as we see those signs being developed, we can then direct our attention toward the goal that God has of all things, the end of all things. Our prayers are prayers of faith with our eye on that goal that God has promised to those that love Him and who are the called according to His promise. Now to put it together, we need to be sober and watchful so that we can pray. That soberness and that watchfulness is so that we can give ourselves to prayer. If we're not sober, if we're not watchful, we won't be praying. Prayer is essential to the life of the believer. Prayer isn't just simply an event that occurs occasionally in my life when I fold my hands and I shut my eyes and I speak some words to God. Prayer isn't just coming to God once in a while with some concerns and some requests. Prayer is not informing God of something that perhaps He's not aware of that's going on in my life. Prayer is the conscious, living fellowship of the believer with Jehovah God. And that's why the Bible talks about prayer without ceasing. Our whole life is a life that's lived in that conscious walk with God. Living with God's face ever before us. When we pray, we stand in conscious communion with Jehovah God, the God of heaven and earth. And we live in the joy and the thankfulness and we confess that that prayer is not for God. That prayer is for our spiritual well-being. That God would strengthen and equip us and cause us to live in the consciousness of His wonder and His glory and His greatness. It's the privilege by which God's children enjoy a foretaste of heavenly fellowship. We know God in Jesus Christ and God has taken us by faith and joined us to Jesus Christ. And as those who live in union with Christ, we enjoy communion and fellowship with Him. Prayer draws us in that union. We confess God's sovereignty. We confess God's greatness, His glory. God causes us to see His hand, His rule in our lives. He gives us strength for the troubles that we face. Prayer is the fountain of of everything that I need to continue my journey. I can't keep going without prayer. I need God and I need His hand moment by moment. 
Prayer is the source of peace. It's a source of contentment. It's the power to be diligent, to be watchful, to be sober, and to have that clear mind. It's living before the face of God. By prayer, Peter here is speaking then of that conscious communion and fellowship with God. And specifically, he's talking here about as the believer walks with God and as the believer experiences that fellowship with God, there is a longing that rises up in his heart. And again, that's the idea of that hope. God works in us a longing for the fullness of all things, for the end. The battle is weary. We fight against sin. We experience the horror of the consequences of sin in our lives. And as we cry out to God, and as we walk with God, God sanctifies and He causes us to see more and more that sin, the horror of it, and to be consecrated to Him and to pursue the things that are spiritual and heavenly. He causes us to desire that fullness of glory. That day when the battle will be over. No more sin, no more suffering. And living in all of the wonder of the fullness of that life with Christ. Peter's talking here about the conclusion. He's talking about the goal of the sufferings of Christ. Why is it that Jesus suffered? So that he could take his whole body to be with him in glory. That he might live with them to all eternity. That was the goal. And now, we have our eye focused also on that goal. Christ is there. He's receiving his loved ones to be with him. And in time, we too will go to be with him and to enjoy the fullness of that glory. Apart from prayer, the child of God will never understand nor view the sufferings of Christ in connection with his own suffering. He won't understand the need to suffer as Christ suffered. To suffer for Christ's sake in the midst of this world? We recoil from suffering. And rather what happens is when we start to suffer, we begin to compromise spiritually because we don't want to suffer. And so we begin to walk further and further away from faithfulness and obedience to God. But the child of God prays for the strength and the courage and the grace to be sober and watchful unto prayer. To pray, Thy kingdom come. And to mean it, thy kingdom come. The one who's drunk can't pray. The one who's intoxicated with the pleasures of this life is not going to be praying. The one that's absorbed with the things of this flesh and pursuing the lusts of the flesh won't be praying. Apart from an attitude of spiritual sobriety, we can't pray for the final realization of God's kingdom in the destruction of this world and the bringing of his saints into the fullness of glory. But the one who is sober and watchful unto prayer is the one in whose heart God is at work. And he's able to pray. He's able to pray for the final glory. He awaits that day with eagerness when this present world is going to be destroyed with fire and when God will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Be sober and watch unto prayer. Now again, beloved, if you're living according to the flesh, this is not going to be your prayer. While immersed in the pleasures and the pursuit of the things of this world, we're not praying for the end to come. 
We're fearful of death. We don't want death to come. We don't want to hear of death. We don't want to hear about the end of all things. We want to live here forever. We don't want to hear about judgment. And that's the warning that we hear in Matthew 24 in connection with the flood and Noah in verses 37 and following. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What does that mean? You children even remember. What was Noah warning the people about? He was saying, a flood is coming, a flood is coming. You need to repent. And did the people listen? They mocked him. They laughed at him. They said, we're going to keep living. We're going to keep going about all the fun and the indulgences of the flesh. And we read, Whereas in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. They were not concerned about looking for the end. They were not looking for any kind of flood or judgment. And so it is with regard to the wicked. They're not looking for the end of the world. They want to continue in their pleasures and the pursuit of the things of this earth. They don't want to hear about judgment. They laugh at us. They mock us. They ridicule us. Beloved, easy, we can get caught up in that stupor. And we need to repent. We need to turn away from the things of this world as ends in themselves. Prayer reveals that God will care for me. And God will provide my every need. And though I suffer, all will be well because my Heavenly Father will see to all of my needs being met. He saved me through the blood of the cross. He gave His own Son for me. And He gives me a place now in heavenly glory that He reserves and keeps for me. And He works in us the grace by which we live before Him with that prayerful spirit, humbly seeking the things that are spiritual and heavenly and looking to Christ who alone is able to keep that focus spiritual, praying for the end and the blessedness of the full victory of God's children and church. What's the urgency of this admonition? That the end of all things is at hand. Literally, Peter states here that the goal of all things is near. In order to shake us from our lethargy and from our careless living, he directs our attention to the nearness of the end. Now, we're so closely tied again to the things of this life. So easily we become very intimately involved in the things here below. And Peter warns us, don't fall asleep. Don't be given to that lethargy, that drunkenness. Watch. Pray. Because the end is at hand. Now, what is the end that's being spoken of? It's not the end of Jerusalem merely. That's what Matthew 24 says speaks of, but notice that even when Matthew 24 makes reference to it, that's not what Jesus is intending to mean as to the fullness of the prophecy. The prophecy clearly goes beyond the destruction of Jerusalem to the end of the world. So that the end of Jerusalem and its destruction was but a type, a picture of the things that yet would come to pass. Now Peter is writing not merely to Jews, he's writing to those who are scattered throughout the known world of his day. And as he writes to Jews, Gentiles, he references the fact the end is at hand. 
And he's talking about the end of all things earthly. The end of the human race. The end of earthly relationships. The end of everything that's fleshly. This world is going to pass away. And God is going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Time marches on. And all things are quickly developing toward that goal of the end or the goal of all things. And that's the idea here. The end is not used as the termination as much as the goal and the realization of that goal. God has a plan with regard to everything that occurs. And until that purpose and plan is realized, that end will wait. The goal of your lives is at hand, Peter says. Now, we don't know when God is going to come in order to take us to be with him in glory. The day will come soon when the scaffolding is taken down. The building of God is finished. And that building of a new man prepared for heavenly glory, once God's work is finished with regard to us, he takes us out of the earthly and translates us into the eternal. The focus of the apostle here, however, is not so much on our individual ends as much as the goal of all things as they pertain to to Christ's kingdom. That day is at hand when God will usher all things into the fullness of the glory that he has determined. And then this earthly life and this world in which we live will be taken down, burned with fire, and the glory of that new heaven and new earth will be revealed as the revelation of the fullness of God's covenant life with his church and with his children. Now, the apostles and prophets all taught and preached as though that end was near. Often the prophets and the apostles are faulted for that. Their prophecy wasn't correct. They said it was near. And look, now 2,000 years almost have passed. And we still don't see any sign of Jesus' return. Were they incorrect in their assessment that the time was near? Did God just want to write that so that the people of God would be afraid and so that they would live in fear? That's not the intention. The end was near, as you're aware, in this sense. The next great event in the history of the world was the fullness of the gathering of the church and the coming of Jesus Christ. There's no other event that is to take place before that. Now, that was not always the case. As we're walking through Old Testament history and catechism, we see that God ordained a number of wonders and events that would come to pass, all of which were typical of that final glorious event. So that, for instance, we have the wonder of creation that was followed by the flood as God then victoriously saved his church by water. But then God ordained that that flood would be followed by the bondage of Egypt, And then the victory of the Red Sea. Then the Red Sea would be followed by the peace, the victory that God would give through David and Solomon. And then there would be the captivity again. And then the deliverance out of captivity. And finally, there would be the time of darkness, the 400 years. And then the glorious fullness of time when Jesus would come. After that, the next great event is the final gathering of the church and the return of our Savior. And so in that sense, it's the next event on God's calendar. 
It's near. And again, how much more true today? We have 2,000 more years of historical realization and fulfillment following the time of the apostles. We can see those signs developing in ways that the apostles would not have been able to see. We see that wickedness has reached new proportions. And while there are still some people, perhaps, that have not heard the gospel, we realize that the gospel has gone almost to every nation. And that's the point of Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. That's the decisive sign. Once the gospel has gone to every nation, then the end will come. And so we realize we are to be busy in the work of missions. And as we engage in that work, we are to be looking and watching and praying with a view to the realization of that wonder. God's desire for his church is that in every age, she lives in the consciousness of the end. And she lives in the expectation of the fullness of the glory that is to come. We must be living constantly in the expectation of the realization of that goal that God has ordained. Now in that, we know there's spiritual tension, and the Apostle Paul knew that himself. He experienced that tension. On the one hand, he was earthly. He wanted to be busy in the work. He wanted to encourage the saints. On the other hand, he was walking with God and desired to be with God and to be out of this flesh. God gives us, similarly, those earthly struggles. But through it all, we're sober and we watch unto the end. Called to live as witnesses of that spiritual desire that God gives us in these last days. Living not for the things here below, but living for God and His glory. Now, beloved, Peter writes this to comfort us. That's striking. Why comfort? The nearness of the end is a cause for joy. It's a cause of comfort for God's children. The object of your hope is near, the apostle says. Now, it's hard for those who are living for the things of this life to see this as comfort. And so far as we are, we won't. We don't see this as comfort. If we're living for the things here below, then we're living for the scaffolding again. That which is going to be burned, that which is going to be destroyed. And there's no joy or comfort then in anticipating the end of that. Peter is writing here to burdened, sorrowful, persecuted saints. Those who find themselves in the midst of this world beleaguered because of their walk with God. As those who walk with God and live in the spirit of prayer, there's struggles, they're oppressed, there's difficulties. And the comfort is that these who face this constant struggle against sin, against the forces of evil, don't have long to wait. Your struggles, your persecutions are rapidly drawing to an end. And God is using those struggles and those persecutions as a means to realize the goal that he has determined. Nothing is in vain. Everything according to God's sovereign, perfect counsel. He is the one who authorizes even the wicked and our enemies to confront us and to cause us grief. 
But he so ordains it that nothing and no one can touch us apart from his sovereign will. So that nothing is in vain. Not the death of that loved one whom we so sorely miss. Not the evil lifestyle, the sins and the consequences that we look back on and we regret. God had a purpose for that also. Not the current struggles that I experience because of standing for what's right. There's a reason. There's a purpose behind the continued struggles, the suffering, the pain of God's children. And Peter was given to see that. We just think of Peter for a moment. Peter had lived for the things of this earth. He gave himself too much to the pursuit of the earthly. He was looking for an earthly kingdom. He wasn't living soberly. He wasn't watching. He wasn't praying. He was arguing with the other disciples. Who could be greatest in that kingdom? This is a kingdom that's going to be earthly. They were interested in the things here below, walking selfishly, concerned about themselves. And then God caused that cock to crow three times. Peter was convicted of his sin. He had denied his Lord. He went out, we read, and wept bitterly. And he could not understand how his weakness and how his sins could ever be forgiven. He couldn't understand how God would ever be able to make use of him for the sake of God's kingdom. But God came to him. Jesus came to Peter and Jesus restored Peter with these beautiful words, feed my sheep. And God used that experience of Peter to show him his need to live soberly, to watch and pray. To live for Christ. To live not for the things of this earth, but to look to that heavenly kingdom of which he was a citizen. Beloved, God feeds us by his word and by his spirit. God causes us to see our sins more vividly. We see and we are ashamed that we too live too often for the things of this life. Live for the earthly, pursuing our own lusts. Living for the sake of the scaffolding instead of for God and for his kingdom. And beloved, we fall on our knees in sorrow and in repentance. And God forgives us and God restores us and we go forward soberly in gratitude to him for his grace and for his mercy, praying for the grace to be sober and to watch unto prayer. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, thou hast done marvelous works on our behalf. Thou hast taken us who were earthly and thou hast given unto us a life that's from above. Cause, Lord, that that life that's from above might be evident in our conduct and our walk. And cause that we might be encouraged and strengthened in the struggles that are here below. Looking with that eye of faith focused upon the end, the goal of all things. And living not in the pursuit of the things here below but in the pursuit of the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 365.